Hello and welcome to week 12 of EAF 49. Uh, this week we're talking a little bit about resistance and power. We'll be doing so by looking at chapters 4 through 6 of Sarah Med's 2017 Living a Feminist Life, as well as an article from The Atlantic called The New Intolerance of Student Activism by Frierzdorf. Uh, that's coming to us from 2015, as well as a documentary entitled How to Start a Revolution um, from 2012. Looking forward to having these conversations with you. Chapter four of Sarah Med's Living a Feminist Life, entitled Trying to Transform, uh, challenges us to think of our lives as feminists um, and the very notion of working as a feminist means, in essence, trying to transform the organizations that employ us. Um, she defines in, in this whole section, chapters four through six, uh, really engage and uh, conceptualize the idea of diversity work. Um, first uh, engaged by uh, Sarah Ahmed in her 2012 book on being included, Racism and Diversity in Institutional Life, in which uh, she utilized qualitative work uh, to consider and think about what are uh, what is the role of and the experiences of uh, quote-unquote diversity workers. Um, and so she defines diversity for diversity work in sort of two ways. It is the work that we do when we're trying to attempt to transform an institution. Um, and it is also the work that we do when we do not quite inhabit the norms of an institution. Um, and so she also is quick to point out uh, that we are complicit in these structures, uh, that we are inside of these structures themselves and thus cannot main any illusions of purity. Um, that, and so this is sort of, I think also resonating, um, with, uh, the conversation, uh, from, I think it was chapter two or chapter three rather, uh, which came obviously right before this, uh, where she closes with, um, a quote from, um, or a sort of an inversion, uh, of, Audrey Lord's The Master's House Will Not Destroy the Master's Tools, where she says that the arms that built this house are the arms that will bring it down. And so she's making room and making space here uh, for the feminist killjoys, uh, the institutional killjoys, which she engages with as well, who inhabit and are in the institution, but not of the institution. Um, she engages and talks about diversity work as messy work, um, that it generates sweaty concepts, uh, concepts that come out of the effort to transform these very institutions uh, that are often not as behind the transfer tape transformation as they appear to be. Uh, the diversity worker for her, uh, and I would agree, is someone who has a job because diversity, equity, and inclusion is not the daily practice of all individuals. She engages here again um, with the idea of the uh, the job description of a diversity worker, um, and and diversity worker is I think not a synonym for someone who works in a multicultural center or in uh, various other um, siloed areas within an institution that's full time job is quote unquote diversity work, but those who um, um, you know, 
diversity, as she says, the second element of diversity work is the work we do when we do not inhabit the norms of an institution. And so it is not necessarily a particular uh, salary job, uh, but the experience of those who are being feminist institutional killjoys and engaging in this work, whether that is their full-time job or not. And so this, this idea of a job description, um, and she engages with this later on, uh, is also a life description, this brick wall. Um, this, uh, the idea of understanding that, uh, the metaphor of a brick wall being something that is, um, intangible and is metaphorical and thus becomes hard to nail down in place, uh, which makes it hard to, for those who are not, um, trying to transform the institution or are, uh, ignorant to it again, begins to uh, echo back to her earlier statements about by naming a problem in the eyes of those who do not see the problem, you become the problem, right? And so when you show these brick walls uh, and make them real for others, uh, you become emblematic of brick walls. She also uh, talks about um, the diversity work um, is a form of institutional polis polishing, rather. She has a quote, I think it's from 102, diversity becomes a technique for not addressing inequalities by allowing institutions to appear happy. For some practitioners, the positivity of the term diversity makes it useful as a way of getting people to the table. For others, the positivity is, the pro is a problem as it allows the reasons you might want people to get to the table to be obscured. She engages and talks about the words that travel more, i.e. diversity, do less. And the words that travel less do more, racism. And I, I'd be interested in uh, your ideas on why that is and what she means specifically here. Um, uh, interestingly, she talks here uh, again oh, about the notions of documents that this is from 103, the document that documents the inequality of the university become usable as a measure of good performance. So in essence, she's arguing here that when an institution is, uh, for instance, trying to address any blackness, um, in essence, ends up celebrating its any blackness in saying, look how look at what we've done. We've created this report. And so we end up celebrating this report for the, the good work that a committee has done, uh, which in essence is sort of celebrating the anti-blackness in this instance of the institution uh, rather than actually doing work uh, to combat it. And so often within diversity work, we continue to make reports talking about the campus climate or um, how um, how uh, rough it is for various different marginalized populations rather than actually addressing the root cause. Um, it becomes sort of a Band-Aid uh, as a way, as a non-performative, uh, as she calls them, um, saying that we've done something, but in essence, we're not doing anything except for documenting um, how in uh, non-inclusive we are. Um, she also talks about the unstable foundations, for instance, here of women's studies. She says, women's studies has unstable foundations as it attempts to transform the very ground on which it rests. But when we shake that foundation, it's harder to stay up. Uh, so there is this idea of shifting sands uh, underneath the foundations of women's studies. And I would argue under the interdisciplinaries in general, the, the cultural studies, as I've said in class, anything that sort of ends in studies. Um, any sort of anti-oppressive, anti-oppression-oriented work um, 
is uh, on loose ground for the very nature that it is birthed out of the academy, um, but is also resistant to the academy. Um, and so uh, is in essence sort of uh, unstable. And so what does it look like uh, to uh, challenge that and change that? What does it mean to be in question? It's chapter five of Sarah Med's uh, text, Living a Feminist Life, entitled Being in Question, is oriented around the idea of how existence um, is in of itself uh, an act of political labor. She talks about how diversity work is often the work we have to do because we are thrown. What does it mean to be thrown? Um, and so for Ahmed, being someone who plays with words, I think about uh, the act of being thrown into a space, thrown, think, being thrown at us, uh, being thrown off. And so the, the word thrown um, in the English language has uh, multiple iterations of what it can mean and could mean. And so she sort of uh, plays with that idea and how to explore how uh, one can throw someone and also be thrown. Uh, she talks about in this chapter uh, being in question. Um, and what does it mean to be in question or to question uh, uh, things within um, the uh, academy or within life? And she focuses in these three chapters really on the academy, um, but uh, can also be directed at thought of uh, within other and additional contexts. Uh, she talks about um, how individuals notice things when our, quote, bodies put us in different worlds. That is to mean we are both seen and not seen in our fullness. Uh, this combats uh, and ensures our fullness and belonging. And so uh, what, I, what I am reading out of that is how our uh, bodies are put into a different world. Um, this is coming from her um, work on page 127, uh, middle of the chapter, uh, she talks about anytime that she walks into a room with a white male professor, noticing how the collective gaze falls upon him. It feels like a landing plop, plop. You walk in together, but you aren't seen as together. And so the world, uh, in, in this area is really talking about, uh, the idea of the academy and who belongs, um, uh, and what does that belonging look like? Um, I draw on her work uh, from um, queer phenomenology uh, as well as her other book um, uh, on being included to conceptualize what it means to be belonging to a space. Um, you know, I, I've, I, I have shared the idea of sort of like welcoming events and what does it mean to welcome someone? Um, it, it sort of signifies who belongs and who is new to the space. Um, and so uh, this idea of our bodies being put into different worlds, uh, being in question of that space and what does that look like uh, for uh, people who are queered uh, by gender or sexuality or race or class or the various other uh, identitarian categories uh, which are seen as not belonging uh, within the academy. Um, and so by being an individual who is seen as not belonging, um, we feel that there's sort of an effective reality of what it means to feel out of place. And I think everyone has sort of felt out of place um, at a time in their life. Um, but for Ahmed, she's really talking about um, 
the persistent and ongoing out of placeness, um, the disorientation of uh, being out of uh, step of the norms of those institutions. Um, so she, she later goes on to talk uh, towards the end that the uh, political work begins with these moments of disorientation. It involves these failed orientations. And here I know I'm talking, you know, with, uh, you know, several people who work in our orientation office. And we're not really necessarily talking about college orientation, but how we are oriented or not uh, to the space in which we inhabit. Um, what does that mean to be oriented and to be disoriented? Um, and so she's talking here about the bodies, quote, the bodies that do not follow the line of whiteness, for instance, might be stropped in their tracks. Uh, this does not necessarily mean that you are stopped from getting somewhere, but it does change your relationship relation to what is there. The world does not recede when you become the stranger, the one who stands out or stands apart. Things might even become oblique to you, even if the feeling of a stranger has become a familiar feeling. This orientation can thus move around. It involves not only the bodies becoming objects, but also the disorientation and how objects are gathered to create a ground or to clear a space on the ground. If your arrival can disturb the whole picture, it can be disturbing for the one who arrives. And so um, I take this to mean to think about how we um, welcome, right? And so I talked a little bit about the welcoming and the fraught and tension-filled experiences of welcoming. Um, how do we or truly create a space where we have radical inclusion for all individuals, um, and so that is a sweaty concept. Um, it is something that is fraught and tension filled and something without an easy answer. And so I'll be interested uh, to hear from you all uh, on what does it mean uh, to um, disorient, orient and reorient uh, individuals. Chapter six, Brick Walls, uh, really engages with the metaphorical understanding of the job description become life uh, description of brick walls. Uh, diversity has thus diversity work has thus been far this far being considered as the work we do to transform institutions as well as the work that we do when we do not inhabit these norms. Um, moreover, she addresses and speaks to uh, the knots. Um, and so defining sort of the experiences of uh, those who do not meet the norms of the institution. And Torres talks about the more knots that you are or inhabit or represent, the more likely you uh, are to end up on a diversity committee. Uh, and the more knots, the more committees. Um, and so this is often thought of as um, a the black tax or the brown tax or the pink tax or the lavender tax, um, all the different ways that uh, different uh, members of different marginalized populations are tasked with doing additional labor to attempt to transform that institution. There's a really great uh, chapter in a book, and I think the name of the book is called Educators Queering Academia. I could be wrong on it, but the name of the chapter is called Do These Earrings Make Me Look Dumb? And it speaks about, it is written by a woman, a trans woman, um, who is a um, scientist of some sort. I want to say that her expertise is in bio, um, and um, she speaks about the experiences of being a, a biologist um, within the academy, and 
um, how she does not, um, it is not her um, expertise being trans is not what she researches. It is not her um, expertise in terms of um, uh, as a scholar, but because she is trans, so many uh, people uh, turn to her for professional development about gender. Uh, that is not her expertise, but still how she is um, thought of as a, an academic um, and ends up becoming sort of the token trans person on campus um, and how problematic uh, that can be um, for her. And so this is uh, an experience that is replicated over and over across various different disciplines and institutions uh, that individuals who inhabit a historically marginalized or targeted community end up being uh, tokenized uh, to serve on these diversity committees, um, even if that is not necessarily their um, expertise. Um, she uh, talks about how the brick wall is a metaphor. It's not a tangible thing that we can physically implode. In fact, I would argue that if it were, that would make the work easier. Uh, instead, this uh, brick wall has been built brick by brick, inequality by inequality, to put up barriers to radical inclusion. This chapter makes the point, in part, that these brick walls maintain equality as a defense mechanism. Uh, the, the, the more knots that you embody, the more the wall is needed because, uh, to quote her, the wrong bodies could pass through. And so these brick walls put up, um, attempt to maintain, um, a historical anachronistic idea of who has been, um, and allowed within in the institutions. And I sort of say anachronistic because while um, we certainly um, have a history of uh, exclusion within the academy and it was originally built for um, wealthy land-owning white men, we also recognize that there were probably uh, trans and uh, queer individuals who were in those spaces but passed or... Um, uh, passed as uh, cisgender and uh, heterosexual. Um, and so while these walls have long been kept up to maintain spaces that were exclusive of women uh, and uh, folks of color, uh, queers and trans people may have been able to pass through um, and sort of disrupt these ideas of what the academy was. And thus these walls have always sort of been inefficient at keeping everyone out um, and, and have been more efficient at keeping some populations out, namely folks of color and women. Um, and so these brick walls as a um, metaphor uh, really are, I think, is a meaningful metaphor because it is something that um, cannot be physically imploded and is something while those of us who are working to transform the institution may feel that we are actually beating our head against the wall is one of the images she uses or running against the wall or trying to get over the wall or around the wall or under the wall or whatever, it still presents a an imagined barrier that is very real and material um, for those of us who are trying to transform the institution. Again, those who do not see that wall um, don't know it's there and to name that wall once again is to become part of the problem. Um, and I think that is sort of 
the essence of the idea of the brick wall. Um, she talks about um, oppressive structures such as sexism and racism are littered with good intentions. And here I'm drawing on her uh uh, her arguments and thoughts uh, from page 151. She talks about um, a conversation email uh, that she had with someone who said that um, he, he basically felt bad, but he meant well, um, right? And so um, I, th- I make the argument out of this and, 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 you know, sort of my own experience is that Oppressive structures such as sexism and racism are littered with good intentions. And she uses the idea of littered with good intentions. And I really love the use of the word litter here, right? As if it were garbage being thrown out after being used. Um, and that being used is the, a move to innocence. Uh, that by, quote, feeling bad, I mean well, right? And so how often is the garbage of uh feeling bad as a move to innocence uh, utilized uh, by well-meaning people um, that, oh, I couldn't be, insert, uh, you know, racism, sexism, racist, sexist, homophobic, whatever um, sort of uh, oppressive behavior. I couldn't be X because of Y, right? It's just another move to innocence that we talked about Uh, off of Tuck and Yang a few weeks ago, right? And so these um, moves uh, try to engender an effective response uh, of forgiveness in a a space that individuals don't necessarily always deserve it. Um, And so there are lots of ways that we try to position ourselves as not um, when we inhabit the R's, right? And by that, I mean, I'm drawing upon her arguments of the knots, right? From the beginning of this chapter, the more knots you are, uh, so the opposites being the R's, right? I am white, uh, for instance. And so I'm not, um, tasked, uh, or taxed as it were of speaking, um, on behalf of all people of color or all black people or, all uh, Latinx, Latino, Latina people, uh, or all Middle Eastern people or Asian people, right? Um, But I have been tasked and taxed by speaking on behalf of all queer people, right? Um, And so sort of the R's, um, and by R's, I mean like privileged positionalities, uh, attempt to reify their own uh, privileges uh, by um, making moves to appear as quote-unquote drawing again here on some of uh, the work from uh, several weeks ago when we read uh, Tiffany, Friend of People of Color, uh, is that trying to pull on the the idea of being the quote-unquote good white or the good straight or the good cis or uh, the various other ways that folks try to maintain this idea of being quote-unquote one of the good ones. She closes this chapter uh, by talking about arms again. And so she talked about arms, um, I believe, at the end of chapter two. Um, and so she talks about uh, them again here in closing. Uh, the arms that keep coming out of the grave, out of a death that has been and will be a collective assignment. It can signify persistence and protest, or perhaps even more importantly, persistence as protest. We need the arms 
something to reach for, or perhaps we are the ones being reached by the arms. After all, we know some of us are only here now on these grounds because arms and history have refused to keep laboring, to keep building or holding up the walls that secure the master's residence. We are here because the arms were striking, because the arms are striking. Arms and history, hands that clench into fists and arms as protest signs. Arms raised as salute, arms that say do not shoot. Some of us are only here on these grounds because those arms and history have spoken, a history that is now, a history that is still. Um, and so she's calling to arms um, and and not in a sort of like violent manner, um, uh, but for us to uh, live out a feminist life uh, and embody the institutional killjoy to speak up, to continue to lift as we climb and help those who are still not getting access uh, equitably uh, to education in this instance, uh, but to a number of different resources and uh, human rights. Uh, she closes uh, this chapter by saying that we strike at what is still. Audre Lorde titled an essay with a proclamation, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. And that unflinching will never is a call to arms. Do not become the master's tool. And so I'll be interested to hear from you all and engage with you all about what does it mean to resist becoming the master's tool? How do we who are in the institution resist becoming of the institution and just another tool in maintaining the inequity of the institution? The 2015 article by Connor Frersdorf, The New Intolerance of Student Activism uh, from The Atlantic is about a engagement over Halloween costumes at Yale um, and how um, it has uh, engaged and uh, by sort of a quote-unquote censoring of additional people's views. So this uh, article uh, made quite a splash uh, when it was published in 2015 um, and really considers what does it mean, um, what is free speech um, and freedom of expression look like on campus? And so um, uh, professors, uh, doctors, uh, Nicholas Christikis and uh, Erica Christikis um, both were professors uh, at Yale and had a side, um, uh, an administrative assignment to be um, basically uh, principals of a residence hall, a learning community at Yale. Um, and so Erica Christakis uh, sent out an email um, talking about how heavy-handed the advice Yale administrators offered uh, about Halloween costumes to avoid. And so uh, Dr. Christakis um, is um, a lecturer in early childhood education and talks about the developmental process of uh, in her letter, the developmental process of Halloween and making choices and uh, so on and so forth. And uh, they received a lot of pushback from students on campus. And so this article kind of somewhat synthesizes um, this conversation. Um, and this uh, was a national conversation, albeit about six years ago, about what does uh, – freedom of expression and free speech on college campuses look for. Um, I'll be interested uh, to hear your perspectives on this case at the intersection of uh, being an institutional killjoy and how um, 
we may bump up against brick walls and what those brick walls look like uh, within the academy. Lastly, we'll be watching a documentary called How to Start a Revolution, uh, which is the story of three-time Nobel Peace Prize nominee Gene Sharp. Um, and so here is a little information about that video. this documentary engages and thinks about and considers how one can engage in revolutionary acts uh, against states. And so we are not necessarily considering or thinking about that, but how do we potentially use some of these strategies in our work uh, as uh, quote-unquote diversity workers to attempt to change the institutions and transform the institutions? Looking forward to having these conversations with you.